Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Hi everyone, it's Roxanne. How are you this week? So thanks for tuning in uh, again. Uh, this week I have a special uh, guest, and it's Ravi Tangri. Tangri. Is that the correct way to pronounce it, Ravi? Tangri. Uh, Ravi is a colleague of mine from uh, the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers. He has been a member for a very long time. Met Ravi probably about a year ago in um, Ottawa at our national conference. So Ravi is based in Halifax, and um, he is uh, quite a fascinating um, back. He's got a fascinating background um, working <laughs> organization. So I'm going to read a little bit about his bio, and um, you know, if there's anything that I miss, Ravi, if you can add to it, that would be fantastic. So um, organizations and organizational changes are incredibly complex, and Ravi Tangre mastered complexity in his first career as a quantum physicist. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a quite a fascinating perspective. He's learned that the secret to complexity is not not to find the simple. Sorry, he learned that the secret to complexity is to find the simple pressure points where you apply tiny pressures and the whole system changes. It's not about trying to control everything and overcomplicating it all. This is the lens he has used as a change agent both within organizations and as a consultant for almost three decades. So that's quite a while, quite a while at, at uh, this type of work to help organizations navigate complex change. Uh, Ravi has a master's degree, two, a double master's degree, master's of science and an MBA, and has earned his certified speaking professional designation. And that's quite uh, one of the highest designations in speaking. Uh, where we, I think we have only a handful of CSPs in Canada, quite, quite the accomplishment. So Ravi, thanks so much for being with me to, uh, today. It is my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I think the thing to, to realize is, you know, with, with that intro, just to realize this is whenever people think physics or quantum physics, they, their head blows up or their eyes glaze over, right? This is not about crazy crazy complex stuff it's about really finding the simplicity in what's working so yeah because when you think of generally when think people think of quantum physics it's like a big concept and we generally don't think of quantum physics i guess unless you're um breaking it down into in the scientific field and i know neuroscience talks a little bit more about it now so you work a lot with organizations so tell me tell me kind of First of all, how did you make that shift? Because <laughs> that's, that's quite that's quite the uh, that's quite the shift, Ravi. I wish I could say that I planned it, um, <laughs> but no, the universe takes you where you need to go. Uh, I started out. I was a nerdy, geeky, shy kid, and math came really easy to me. It was like second language, so I wanted to do something not just pure math, but applied. So I went into physics and it was fun. It was interesting, interesting enough for me to do some graduate work in. And, but it 
really wasn't my passion. And along the way, as I sort of grew out of my shyness, grew out of my nerdiness, and I, I discovered, you know, like at the same time that I was doing my graduate work in physics, I was also DJing at a nightclub and I was uh, running a telethon for children's charity. And I, I sort of realized that people are my passion, mm-hmm. um, not eating radiation. So I went back to school uh, after working in physics for a bit and I got my MBA. And then when I, the first job I got very quickly within a few months, I was drafted into a team that we reinvented the way we did business. Uh, This was before all the books were out and all this stuff on, on that. And what I discovered is that the way of seeing the world that I developed as a physicist of navigating complexity of finding those simple pressure points, that applied 100% to working with organizational change, to working with individuals uh, in change. It's not about trying to muscle the change in and create massive change. It's about really this tiny little pressure points. I mean, think about it. Uh, If you're thinking about a simple way people get it is with traffic, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, oh, God forbid the 401. I still have nightmares of that from when I lived in Toronto. But, you know, you get one car. All it takes is one car at the right spot. And what happens? That's a tiny little pressure point, And the entire thing shuts down, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you've got a parking lot. Not just the lane it's in, but the entire thing backs up. And that's one tiny little pressure point. And it takes time to get the emergency vehicles there and all that and to clear that. Mm-hmm. But what, And once it's cleared in a very short time, all of a sudden things flow is very well. But it's that tiny little block that that not only kills that thing, but all the other streets because everyone's now going on the other routes, which normally don't have that much traffic. So all of a sudden, nobody can get into the city. Well, that's, that's a, a nice example. So, so I've worked a lot in, I worked in uh, corporate health and wellness consulting for about 16 years, Ravi. So I've worked, you know, as an executive and I had the kind of, we worked at kind of the impact psychologically of what was happening different within different sectors. And we made recommendations, you know, based from banking to the legal profession and kind of looked at the stressors psychologically that would keep people away from work. So when you think of that traffic jam or that little detour, when you work with organizations, in what capacity are they bringing you in? Are they generally bringing you in to put out a fire or are they more proactive in kind of looking at what they're trying to achieve with their long-term goals? It's usually... Honestly, it, it, there's some sort of a crisis that's hit, either with competition or uh, budget slash or uh, regulatory changes where all of a sudden they're, they're freaking out because just the way they've done it, they, you can't cut anymore. I mean, we've done, uh, you know, it's been do less with more for so long that now everyone's been doing everything with nothing, right? So you, there's nowhere right. left to cut. Uh, so they're, they're going... They're, they just don't know what to do. And really that's important because in some, in a way you have to let go of your, in your reflexive ways of doing things to open to new ways. Um, 
what I work with is something that I call co-creative leadership. Uh, you know, most of the leadership books that are out there talk about transformational or visionary leadership. That's basically where the leader has a vision. It's like, I have seen the promised land and I will take you there. Yes. Right. And the trouble is you can get people excited about it, but when Kaka hits the fan, it's not their vision. So they, 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 they drop off and co-creative leadership is where the leader has to have the strength to step out of his or her ego and say, you know what, I don't have all the answers. I can't see the vision, it's too complex. I need to engage everybody to collectively craft the way forward and let's co-create it. And that takes a lot. Not many leaders are willing or able to do that, um, to, to be able to surrender power, if you will, to yeah. the wisdom of the group. But the group always knows, uh, has the information. But you, you cannot, it's so complex out there now that one person or an executive team alone, it's incredibly hard for you to control everything you need to. Right, because to some degree, and I'm going to use the word man, but a lot of these CEOs, as we know at the C-Sweeters, still predominantly men out there. Um, mm -hmm. To get to that level, I mean, you have to have a certain ability or capacity to sit in that chair. And now yeah. you're, you're talking about, in a way, going against the grain a bit, in that it's going against, potentially, them being in, and I'm going to use the word in control. You're talking about almost having them step down in a way, even if it's figuratively, to kind of get in there, get in there in the pond with everybody else so that they can connect more authentically as a person or as a CEO? What, what, what's kind of the concept in your, when you uh, do your particular program or concept with organizations? Well, it's basically that, that, you know, the, 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 the CEO has got to realize that, you know, and this is why it's a crisis often where they're more open to this, that they, they cannot do it. Like everything they know is not working. And the, the thing is, you know, I, I, I chuckle at when people talk about change management, because what other type of management is there? Nothing stays static, <laughs> right? It, it's, yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous to, um, and it's back to the old adage that people don't mind change. They just don't like being changed. Mm -hmm. And all of this resistance and all this stuff, what most people are dealing with is people fighting them, resisting all that, that change because it's being done. My God, the energy that's galvanized and the insight that's galvanized, mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't have to be this, CEO or the executive team that comes up with all the answers. And, and part of that is there are very different processes where you can engage people. Like most ways that people think of engagement, the old ways, they, they, they actually encourage disengagement or they give a voice to the vocal minority, which the, the you know, leadership generally dreads hearing. But there's processes now where you can literally, I can literally take a thousand person organization away for three days and have them collectively craft a strategic plan 
for the organization to move forward. But it takes, boy, oh boy, it takes huge courage for the leader to trust mm -hmm. that their plan. What happens to the resistance to change when you implement? Mm. It's gone, right? right? Because right. they've created it. Mm -hmm. They've had the input, the buy-in is there. And all that energy, all think about in organizations, people say we don't have the time to do this. Well, think about the last two years, all the change you've gone through, how really be brutally honest with yourself. How much time have you invested dealing with resistance to change, people that are fighting you overtly, covert, covert resistance is huge. Mm -hmm. Disengagement. You know, there's a huge rise in organizations of presenteeism, you know, absenteeism mm -hmm. where they're is physically not there. Presenteeism, they're physically at work, but it's like, hello, nobody's home, right? <laughs> yes. uh, so imagine having all of that energy then collectively focused together. That's, it's, it's amazing when that happens. So I'm, I'm going to assume then, Ravi, that there's, first of all, the, the organizations in dire straits, they've cut every lean part off. There's nowhere else to cut they're still not getting competitive within their, against their external pressures and competitors. They call somebody like you in. Um, so I would think that uh, to, to some degree, you would probably have to work with the CEO as much yes. as you have to work with the, the, the thousand em employees that you're taking off site. Absolutely. So tell me the process that you use and is it, is it, um, concurrent or is it that you work with the CEO for a bit and then you introduce the concept of, uh, co-leadership how, how do you do that honestly it, it will vary uh, you know you can't say that there's a cookie cutter and that's part of what my what makes it challenging sometimes is that my approach is not a cookie cutter you know step one step two you have to adapt to what's there and the the thing is first is to get the the and and really to some extent it can work concurrently but usually there is some work initially with the CEO, even before I would start coaching them, just in exploring the contract, there's actually some some work there. And really, let's get clear. If you do nothing, what's going to happen? Where are we going to be? Where are you going to be in two years? Let's concretize that. That's like, so that they, because people tend to create a wall of fog that if, you know, if I, you know, they, they pretend they can't see what's coming and it's like if I don't see it maybe it won't happen well <laughs> not the case so yeah. it's how so there's conversations there okay what's going on and and then one of the things I work at is not just what's what's wrong well one of the principles I work with is called appreciative inquiry which is let's look at what's going right what are you doing that's working well because we want right. to build that. Because normally we just start with what's wrong and rip people apart. So what are, what's working well? Great. Now, where do you want to be? Where's the gap? How do we do that? And then we'll, we'll collectively craft a way forward there. Okay. Okay. And so a lot of time people are disengaged. So they, they need to feel that it's safe to be involved. So just as a CEO needs to get there. You also need to, sometimes the people are so beaten down with change after change after change that they have to feel it's safe to trust and to step and to offer something. And I would think too that often, 
you'd probably have to do like a bit of an autopsy and how they've dealt with changes prior to that also. Because I know that when in my role um, in health and wellness, one of the things that I would do is, you know, when there was downsizing, right-sizing, whatever you called, we'd call in teams and, you know, or if there was a trauma, we would call in teams and whatever. Mm -hmm. We had all the full spectrum of services. But sometimes a lot of those changes were dealt with rather poorly. So I don't, does that kind of, is that a frame you're looking at yes. also when you're going in? <clears throat> well, first, I will never work with the downsizing. I'm sorry. Okay. It's, you cannot. Uh, uh, there are organizations that have called me in after to say, how do we move forward? But I will not work with any organization on downsizing. Um, because it's, it doesn't matter what you do. It's really, really hard to engage people with the possibility that they're living in fear that they're the ones that are going to be cut. Right. And I also believe there are always, always, always options where you can reallocate those people that maybe aren't adding value now to other ventures that will add value to mm -hmm. other ways they can add value. So they may not have the same job, but they could have a job of similar value. And if the CEO is willing to make that commitment going in, then yes, I'll work with them that yes, people may get displaced out of their current jobs, but there's a guarantee that you will have a job of equal value that makes a difference. Then, then I'll work with them because then they, the people are feeling more assured that you've got their back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I would think that, you know, I, I've been obviously like anybody that's ever been in corporate, I've been in that position and I did it for years. And I remember when I got mine, it was like, okay, where was this coming from? But of course it had been a merger six months prior. Um, and, but of course, when you're the one it's happening for, it, it becomes personal. It's not long, no longer about the, uh, you know, the overall strategic business objectives, you know, because it obviously was at a higher level. But as a person at that point, it, it, of course it affected me. I'd spent 10 years, you know, giving my heart and soul to the company. And then you find out, okay, guess what? You know, here's, your, here's my laptop. Here's my phone. <laughs> okay, goodbye. Yeah. See you later. That's, that's, that could be uh, quite difficult. So if that's done poorly, um, that could impact, obviously, anyone coming in to work with the organization. Would you agree? Right. And, and the thing is, when you lay off someone or when someone leaves, Let's be brutally honest here. Even if you're not being nice to the person, it's not about that person. How you treat that person is going to be impact the survivors and Absolutely. how committed they are. Right, for sure. Right? So if you're brutal and this and that, they're wondering, okay, when's my turn? Versus, um, you know, there's one of the most amazing leaders. I know he had someone who came to him and said, look, I've got this opportunity. I mean, it was a great work environment he was in, but I've got this other opportunity. And the boss went and supported him, said, look, I'll give you the reference. What do you need? Boom, boom, boom. Here's how do we find, how do we make the transition work? All of this totally supported this guy growing his career. He wound up coming back several years later. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is the impact it had on everybody else to know that, you know, forget firing. If I'm looking for another opportunity, I'm still supported. And that's a reality today that, you know, I, I think they get much worse rap than they, that they deserve. But millennials are not lifers. 
right? Mm -hmm. They will work for a certain amount of time. And if you are a good leader, you can increase the time they'll be with you, but they will probably leave. And then they may come back years later with more skills. Uh, how you work with that is critical to the level of commitment and critical to whether or not they will ever come back with those extra skills. And to that leader, what's better, um, I'm going to use the word PR, um, not that he's promoting what would have happened, but his steps, the fact that he would have helped that person in such a, a gracious way, I'm sure spread like wildfire, right? Because generally it did. that goodwill at the, to that level. And then it gets out there that, you know, yes, things are tough. We're, we're, you know, we're going through a rough time, but this particular person took the time. So I would think, um, you know, in our day and age with everything being out there, how quickly um, that would have spread probably within that organization or even the, him having the capacity to come back and add value again a couple yeah. weeks later. Well, let's call it PR because in today's day and age, if people treat you wonderfully or if people treat you terribly, it's probably going to wind up on social media. Absolutely. So absolutely well, you see the captions, whether it's I waited too long and I had bad yeah. service to somebody being pulled off a plane. You know, we see it all now within minutes. So really, to some degree, it is a level of PR. So I think you're right. It's, it's now I would think that uh, organizations and CEOs or C-level, C-suite have a lot more pressure to really make sure that they work on themselves to get it right. Yeah, it's. And, and the thing is, you see, it, there's that pressure again that you cannot control everything. And it, the old model is that you've got to control everything. You're in, no, you, you've got, it's about controlling the right things. And that's where this, the, the, the complexity thing comes in about what, what are the tiny little things that you need to control that will keep everything on track. So, uh, I mean, give you couple of really simple examples, right? Um, one is what I call goal alignment. Are the goals al aligned? Uh, and, and at those critical, you know, the, the buzzword is moments of truth. When you can either do something amazing for your customer to wow them or something goes wrong and you can resolve them, resolve a problem, right? Um, how often is management there at those moments of truth? Not very often. No, for it. it's a frontliner, and what are they motivated to do? And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, they are usually motivated to tick off the customer. And it's not just what they held. It's the I'm sorry, I don't have the authority for this. I don't. Right. I'll, I'll give you an, an example of this. Is you know, in our business, we travel a fair bit, right? So, what have we seen for the last several years in, in hotels that you know, if you hang your towel up, we will save the environment. There. Right, They're also right. saving themselves laundry, but, <laughs> but, but if, you, if you leave it on the floor, we'll replace it. I've hung up my towel, I don't know how many places, and guess what? I come back in and there is a new towel. Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because if someone who doesn't care, who's not paying attention to this, hangs up the towel, they expect a new towel, they come back and the dirty towel is there they get on the phone and they tear a strip off the operator who calls the operations person who yells at the the the, the you know the, the the maid or the cleaning staff who are already overworked and understaffed and they have to run back to that room and change it right yes it's easier for them to just 
change every towel so they don't have to deal with that. Because you know what? The people who are environmentally conscious don't call up and get angry that you change the towel. So th that's a you know that that it's not just the goals formal goals you have it's what they're held accountable for right and what what they are um what they are punished for that's the, that drives the goals and mm -hmm. if you know if you are saying we want to be customer folks customer, but then you are really coming down on expenses and, and you know, people are punished for doing things extra. Guess what? You're not going to get that customer focused. Let's get some congruence there. You're almost working at cross purposes to your goal because that absolutely yeah are. yeah. There's no almost you are, and so it's 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 to pull out these tiny little things that that you don't even see when you're in an organization where the goals are not in alignment and, and you're actually motivating your, your customers, uh, your, your employees to tick off your customers. And that's not, not just for private sector. Public sector has customers too. And it may not be cash or profits, but it's, you've got to deliver service and so on. And you still get in the way. So, you know, it's, that's a perfect example. I, I worked at a hospital. I ran a unit um, and I came in, I was the, you know, the you know young grad schools you know graduate <laughs> I'm going in I'm going into management right really young you know and um, there was a senior person there who to put it kind of bluntly she was not very good she would react and would yep. consistently fire people when when she was in a bad mood and so I took over this unit and people were petrified Ravi so they saw me they thought oh you know it won't take long. We'll get rid of her soon because they, you know, they were, they were ready for me because <laughs> they thought, okay, we know what the senior person is like. And then they hire me and I come in and I literally, I used to joke around with them once I, you know, things got better that I thought they had my picture of myself in a, a in their basements on a dartboard. And they used to use poison darts to see if they could, you know, you know, hit my face because they were so mistrustful and, um, and they, they were serving people in addictions. So to imagine that they're clinicians and they're being treated badly. And then they have to go out and serve, you know, people that are pretty critical. So the whole process was that they had had minimal, the, the trust had been stripped at such a level that it didn't matter. They could have put the Dalai Lama in that position. They probably would have done the same to him. So, you know, having seen right. that, you're so right. It's a little, the little, little things, you know, um, at Christmas one time, uh, one little thing I did because I thought I got to do something. So before they, you know, find other problems, I, I did shirts with just the unit on it, Christmas shirts, something simple, probably cost me five bucks a shirt. It made their year because mm -hmm. they were important. They were special, you know, those types of things with their name on it, just with, you know, with something really silly and a little luncheon, which was nothing. So it's so, it's so true when you say um, people just need to know, you know, treat me well so that I can go out and do what's expected of me, but don't disconnect me from the, you know, the mission and the vision and all those things. But when it comes down just to me, little old person in your unit, um, you're treating me like I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy of good things. 
Okay, now there's one thing too. I, I, that's really important, the, how you treat each person, right? And, and, and j just another quick aside, there's very little black and white in, in organizational culture, but if you look at turnover, I'd, if not 100%, 99% of turnover is because of the boss. If you have high turnover, it's 100% because of the boss. There's no black and white. There's no gray. It's, right. it's it, you know, people leave bosses, not jobs. I mean, yes, some people leave jobs for, but, you know, other than new opportunities. But the other thing, the mission vision, let's touch on that. First of all, uh, most missions and visions are about as motivating as a root canal. Okay, we strive to be a world-class provider of insert uh, yeah, yeah. our product here. It's BS. You know, that it's so, so watered down and politically correct. It means nothing. When I work on strategic planning with organizations, we don't start with that. We start with what's our shared purpose. Why do we exist? But in plain English. Mm -hmm. And... If we can, we will literally engage the whole organization in this. Now, you said healthcare. I worked in a major um, four-year transformation program here in Nova Scotia. I was involved with a, a major one in the United States. At one point in both of these projects, two different healthcare systems, right? Very different healthcare systems. We had the whole system in the room. We had 300 people in uh, an auditorium here in Nova Scotia, everyone from CEOs of hospitals and Department of Health reps all the way to, uh, you know, to, to different colleges down to people on the line and all that. We had about 80 people in Columbus, Ohio, and we in both, we spent a whole morning using a process called World Cafe where people sit, you know, typical engagement processes have you at tables of eight or 10, which is ludicrous because one or two people talk one or two people listen and the rest are checking their phones it's pointless <laughs> um it's it's a total and utter waste of time um or they have those big auditoriums <coughs> with a couple of microphones that that intimidate everybody and again it's the vocal minority that speaks that's i mean that's you might as well not waste your time and money that that's that's ludicrous uh, World Cafe has people, if you think about real meaningful conversations, mm -hmm. they happen with, not with 10 people at a table or 100 people in room, but with three or four people around the kitchen table, around this, the, you know, the, the, the lunchroom, around the water cooler. And that's what World Cafe does. It has groups of four people and you seed it with very powerful questions and then between rounds between questions you move people around so you cross pollinate ideas so you can actually mm -hmm. in a very short time uh, uh bring a room of a thousand people to consensus on get them on the same page and what we did in this at this stage of both projects is we spent a half a day just asking people what should the purpose of the healthcare system be Okay, mm -hmm. and move people around every half an hour or an hour, right? Just to as a cross ball. And virtually every table in both countries came to the exact same definition with a few, few changes. What they said was that the purpose of the healthcare system should be to support ongoing wellness and treat occasional disease. Is that what we've got hmm. in either country? 
No, we've got an illness care system because we had no clear purpose. We just reacted and we just built and built and react. How much different would it look if we started with that purpose, which is plain English that everybody in the healthcare system can understand how they contribute. And here's a funny thing here in Nova Scotia, when we did it uh, after, when we got to that, some, a senior member of the Department of Health puts a hand up and said, well, we did this uh, 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 last year and we came to virtually the same definition. And I, I went and asked 300 people, does anyone know about this? Not a hand went up. So even if it's the biggest player in the system, the Department of Health, the, it's totally irrelevant if they do it alone. This was the entire system doing it together. So right. they bought in. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So if you start with yeah. that in plain English, then you build your strategies, your competencies, everything from that. Everyone has contributed to it. They buy in. Now the strategy, does it fit that? It becomes, is, does it contribute to that? Wow, that's powerful because what you're doing is you're, you're in a way interviewing or having a conversation about each person's perspective of how they perceive it. And then from that, you're building out um, your strategic plan, <coughs> which is generally done. Well, what's the more, office, you know? everyone's voice was heard. Like the, the, you know, the, the LPN on the line had equal say to the minister of health and the CEOs of the hospitals and uh, minister of the department. You know, it's everyone had equal say. So, you know, and how powerful is that? I was just going to ask you that question, but I think you have answered it is how powerful is that for somebody like an LPN to say, I, I helped draft that. <laughs> Those two words were mine or, you know, how powerful. So when they are dealing with someone that say maybe a disgruntled patron, they can really embody, you know, what it's all about and what their role is and how. Right. How they can yeah. feel good about that. Whereas most people look at the vision or mission statement and they roll their eyes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it doesn't mean a thing. It's so whitewashed and politically correct. It means nothing. And if there's no energy there, if there's no emotion, it's irrelevant. Right. 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 So how long, okay, so the co-creative process, I would assume that that's what that's about. Is that kind of what you do or is there more to the co-creative process? Yeah, I mean, co-creative leadership is about engaging others. Ideally, and there's very few that do this. I worked with a, uh, an organization uh, a few years ago with three divisions where what we did, oh my God, this was so glorious. Uh, I wish we could do this more. We spent months we spent like a, a couple of months traveling the country, engaging in all the three divisions. We engaged everybody across the country to say, you know, what now each of these teams had representatives from across the country, from all levels. And what we did for an intense time together is we took all of that input from across the country and collectively crafted a strategy going forward for, for the, that, each of those divisions. Then we went across the country again to everybody, engaged people, what they like, what they didn't, what were the concerns and so on. And so, and then implemented those. And so, you know, the thing is when it got to, in the past, they had felt they had not been bought in. They'd been resisting the strategy because they had had no voice. 
now they had had a voice all the way through. So all the resistance to change, guess what? It goes poof, right? So all that energy now everyone is bought into this is how we need to move forward and it, it was a pretty transformational strategy in each case and for each of the divisions wow and have you been um are you still connected with them now um to know how they're doing do you do like like a like a pre and post or a follow-up yeah um, yeah i mean you know i was working honestly with these three divisions i was working almost full-time for six months with them uh, to do you know all of those engagements across the country uh but and uh, yeah i do stay in touch that it's you know still moving forward still implementing and and of course there's changes that have happened any strategy has to adapt to what comes down the road but they're still on track Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So it, it really, you know, when I listen to what you're saying, it's really about the way, the approach, the old archaic way of macro to micro, really, it, it's it's almost like it's, it's it's I'm going to use the word bilateral in a way that you're kind of concurrently working with spectrum continually and kind of figuring out what's the best approach. And I, now when you do those uh, uh, creative spaces, I'm sure you're going to also, or I assume you also identify areas with skill development and um, uh, core competencies or, or gaps, gaps or things that need to implement or put in place to kind yes. of. Um, but instead of it just being the executive team that has to come up with it, it's the people, all of the people involved, including the people who are doing the work that identify right. what the gaps are and what needs to happen so oh. that the you know it's much more comprehensive in that uh, and and the thing is it's a mindset shift for leaders that instead of doing it all they're responsible for making it all happen so the burden right. is not on them to come up with the solutions and such the burden is on them to to create the space where the solution can be generated where you tap the wisdom in the group to collectively craft the way forward. Yeah, it sounds like a really um, amazing process that I would think would be just because, like, I mean, if I had buy-in at every level from the person, you know, I often say that when I would go into organizations, when I would visit them, uh, or I could kind of get the pulse based on what the receptionist was like as I sat there and waited for my contact to come out and kind of get a pulse of what was, you know, because a lot of times, you know, I would get a lot of information about just how people were being greeted, Absolutely. how people were kind of being interested, walk by, those types of things. And yeah. um, it's very intuitive. I mean, when you're working with complexity, you can't, the mathematics, going back to the physics, the mathematics is so complex, you can't think it, you have to feel it. And you have to feel intuitively where those pressure points are. The same applies when you're working with people and organization. You sense it. Uh, uh, you know, you can sense where those pressure points are and you can sense what the culture is. Uh, you're right. From what's happening with the receptionist. So it's not based on a formalized assessment and based on what metrics of particular subsets of the organization. You're ready at the end of the day. You're going out. You're you're experiencing people. You're you're intuiting, kind of as you meet different 
parts of the organizations or different, and then you're formulating on a, on an, I, I would, I mean, I, I think that you're doing an ongoing assessment on additional information that's coming to you um, yes. often. Yeah. Well, there are frameworks because part of my work is helping my clients develop this ability, right? To find those pressure points. Okay. And, and then also for leaders, there are assessments. I mean, with leadership, uh, you can actually concretize it with things like 360 degree surveys, right? Which by the good 360s, break it down to specific behaviors, but it's the perception of the leader versus the perception of the people that report to them. That is, that provides the, you know, helps you identify what are the shifts and that concretize it down to very specific behaviors that they need to shift to be able to shift their effectiveness. It makes it much more doable rather than, you know, this hand wavy, ooey, wooey, wooey, gooey uh, leadership stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's, that's, it seems so very unscientific, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's so true. It's a combination. Oh, it's very of that, scientific. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's but 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 it's a combination effect. Yeah, true. Certain things you're you're benchmarking it, but then you're kind of you're you're letting people kind of lead the way based on what they've experienced with the organization. Right, but also just realize that the science I come from is completely different. This is not the physics you learned in high school that hurt your brain. Okay, uh, that that is Newtonian <laughs> physics where everything is predictable and controllable, and, and that's the old style of management which does not work, has never worked. It's better than chaos, but it's mm -hmm. not, you know, quantum physics, some of the premises, and when you're dealing with complexity, you cannot know everything. And it's all about probabilities mm -hmm. and how you shift probabilities. And it's these tiny little things that shift the probabilities. And that's what this is about. You know, you're not guaranteed anything, but it's like you're loading your dice to increase the odds of getting there, to find those pressure. And one of the key pressure points is engagement, uh, real engagement, not just, okay, we'll engage people. And yes, that's a nice exercise you did, but this is, you know, you don't really know what's going on. I know more. So here's the strategy we can have mm -hmm. real engagement where you're taking what people develop and implementing them. And they know that their voice is heard. So the real deal that what we talk about when they have get-togethers or um, you know off kind of conversations between peer-to-peer -peer, those are the one to and really kind of get the real sense of what's happening yeah and then and one of the processes that I use called open space technology and developed by a guy who used mm -hmm. to organize conferences and he realized that the most powerful con conversations that happen at conferences are not in the sessions they're at the coffee table so he said, how can we turn those coffee conversations into the conference? And so what open space is about, there's no agenda, no speakers. And I've gone into meetings like this where no speakers, no agenda. And I say, okay, what are your burning questions? And then they, the people at the conference, it can be hundreds or even thousands of them, call meetings on what's important to them. And everyone goes to the meetings that has energy for them, where they, either they have something to contribute or something to learn. And you know what? You get so much more done because they identify what's relevant and they tap into the wisdom that is in the room. They've got all the answers. I've actually got, gone through that process. It's interesting. It was, it was quite amazing. So that's something to amount when you consult also.
Yeah. I mean, these are the type of engagement processes where you can let every voice be heard equally and you bring people in and, and it moves it to action. You know, that's the key. It's got, it's got to move it forward. It's not just nice little talks. What's going to happen? Well, Ravi, this has been very enlightening. Um, I've learned, I've learned a lot and I, I one listening would have been enlightened um, by all the things you've shared. So what I'd like to um, just, where can people reach you? And um, is there that you'd like to let them know how they can connect if they wanted to uh, work a bit more with you? Well, Something that I do, I mean, this is, this is very different from your traditional way of looking at org leadership at, at strategy development. If, if you're curious, if this has twigged your curiosity and there's some energy to it, what I do offer is a complimentary um, strategy consultation for about 50 minutes where we can talk about what's working, what's not in yours and how, uh, where they may be some quick ways that you could apply this on your own or other opportunities to do it more broadly. And if, if they're interested in that, they can just go to, um, a site called Calendly, C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y.com forward slash Ravi, R-A-V-I dash Tangri, T-A-N-G-R-I. And uh, they, you can schedule it on your own there. Awesome. Well, Ravi, thanks so much again for uh, sharing your wisdom. Um, I've learned a lot and I know it, it impacts what I world and I'm, I'm sure people listening will do the same. So again, for everyone listening, um, just recognize it doesn't have to be complex. It can be quite simple, regardless of what system in your, in your life you're trying to adjust. Uh, look for the clues. Um, figure out what's not working, tap into that intuitive sense that Gravi shared with us about what small thing, you know, that you could potentially use to build and start to make change a little step at a time and not try to kind of um, address everything that may have been developing for a long time. So take care, everyone. And we'll, uh, next time, if you're wanting more information on me, you can go to roxanderhodge.com. Forward slash blueprint, where you can download a free course to get a bit more authentically connected to yourself so you can be better with everyone around you. Okay, take care. We'll talk soon. Bye, Ravi. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.